Well, good morning. My name is Stuart Sanders, and I'm the youth director here at Southwood, and I'm giving Blake a day off. So that's, that's fun. Uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah 4, and since I get kind of to do these kind of one-shot, one-time things, I get to speak on my favorite stuff, so everything sounds like I'm an expert, but it's just because I'm, it's my favorite thing. So I'm talking about leadership today, and the story of Nehemiah is amazing. And we love stories of leaders who persevere all the way through to the end, right? Like we love to hear that story of the guy or the girl who, throughout trial, tribulation, pushes through and finishes. And that's why I love Nehemiah. He's a finisher. Um, And along that thread, when I was a kid, we lived here in town. My dad would take my brother and I on bike rides. And we used to live right down off of South College, right where the College Station Bryan line is. And we'd bike into campus and we'd bike all around, get all hot and sweaty and come to the Memorial Student Center where we'd stop and have a Coke. And my dad buy us that one out of the machine and we'd go in there. And in the front hallway of the MSC, if you've ever been in there, there's a, a, a row honoring all the men who received the Medal of Honor during World War II that graduated from Texas A&M. And before when I was a kid, now it's this big, awesome, beautiful display that's very, very appropriate. When I was a kid, it was just plaques on the wall. And they were just like that big, had an artist sketching of the guy's face and then a replica of his Medal of Honor and the story of how he earned it. So my dad would take us in and we'd sit down and, and while we're drinking our Cokes, he'd read the story of these guys and, and what they did for their country and how they persevered all the way through these hard times and, and, and put it all down, live for something bigger than themselves. And it was great. And I think we identify with stories like that. Um, and a modern day one story like that is, of one of Lieutenant Michael Murphy. Now, let me tell you the story of Michael Murphy. Uh, you get the story from this book called Lone Survivor, if you've ever heard of it. A guy named Marcus Luttrell, he was, uh, he's actually uh, fourth from the left. This team is a SEAL team, Navy SEAL team, and they're going to go into Afghanistan and extract an uh, Al-Qaeda leader, kind of a big dog, like one of the, the upper, upper level guys, and they're going to extract him out. And they take this team in on Operation Red Wing, and... Spoiler alert, Marcus Luttrell is the only one who survives. Four of these guys go in and he comes out and tells a story. And one of the highlights of his story is about Lieutenant Michael Murphy. Now, when these guys get dropped into Afghanistan, they're, they're about 10,000 feet in the, the Hindu Kush mountains in Afghanistan. And it's completely unnavigable. It's hard, rough terrain, hardly any wildlife, hardly any growth. Maps are difficult and uncharted. It's very undeveloped. So they're up there and uh, working, trying to find this highland village where they think this guy is. And so they go in and they're trying to find this guy. They take a rest because it's high elevation, it's hard. And when they rest, they rest with their backs to a tree so that somebody below them only sees a tree and they can see whoever's coming down on the top of the mountain. So taking this rest and kind of spread out a little bit, communicating back and forth. And they hear this calamity coming over the top of the hill and they kind of get all roused up and then they just see a bunch of goats. So it's a bunch of goats coming over the hill and they're kind of like, okay, well... That's not a big deal. But then the goat herders come over the mountain and it's just three guys and they quickly jump on them, grab them, put them down behind a rock so they can't be seen. And, and now they have an issue because the, what, how it works in Afghanistan is that the Taliban just comes in like the mafia and says, you, villagers, you listen to us and we'll protect you kind of deal. They manipulate them, put their thumb on them. And if they resist then they continually get pestered, but if they give in, then they, they have to report back. They have to do all this stuff. And so the SEAL team has no idea where these guys' allegiances are. Clearly, they don't speak the language. So they have a problem now. Do we, do we execute these guys, which is what protocol says, or do we let them go and just hope they don't tell? Marcus Luttrell, he's a, 
good old boy from Huntsville. So he's thinking like about his pastor back home at the Baptist church, like he's not going to be happy if I kill these guys. And so he's, he votes no. One of the other guys in the members, he votes yes. The third member, he, he can't decide. And so it comes down to Michael Murphy. And he's the leader of this specific mission. And the way Navy SEALs work is they rotate leadership. There's no like one guy always the leader. He's the leader. So he's the tiebreaker. And he goes with his conscience and he says, we're going to let these guys go. We just executing them, even though we have the book says to do it, nobody was going to know about it, but it's going to be between me and these guys. Like, he just couldn't do it. So we let them go. So they go on their way. They take their goats back to wherever they were going. And, and the SEAL team continues to move through the Afghan wilderness. And lo and behold, minutes, you know, several minutes later, come charging over the top of the mountain are Taliban warriors. And they come roaring over the top, 50 to 100 of them, there's really no way for us to totally know because they're all getting shot at. And Marcus Luttrell is the only one who survived and he gets shot. So the number is definitely more than four. So they're, they're coming on the mountain. And so this firefight ensues. And the way that Luttrell describes it, they're continually falling down the mountain. So they shoot, lose their footing, take a couple, and they fall down the mountain like 30, 40 feet. And they continually are just tumbling down as this fight continues on. And one of the guys, he gets shot pretty quickly, pretty badly. They're carrying him. Another guy, everybody's getting wounded and all that stuff. And then at, at one point, one guy they know is confirmed dead. The other guy's wounded pretty bad, and he's the radio guy. Latrell has a bullet hole in his leg, and Michael Murphy has nothing gone wrong yet. The radio guy, though, is down. So, Mark, so Michael Murphy has a decision. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to pick this up and radio this, but there's no signal where they are. They're in such deep cover. They got under rocks and bush and all that stuff that they're hiding. They can't get a signal out. So he know, he's got two choices. We either stay here and try to slug it out against un, you know, unbeatable odds, and they know the terrain. They can move in this stuff. This is their home, ter- their home territory. Or I go out and radio for help. So he picks up the radio guy's radio and goes right out into the open, into the fray of the battle where it's thickest, and makes the call. And as he's making the call, he takes a bullet through the back, drops the radio. Luttrell's watching all of this stuff happen from cover because he can't really move well. He's got a wounded leg. He sees him drop the radio, pick it back up after being shot through, and continue to make the call. GPS locations, how many insurgents there are, you know, what's, what's the landing area look like because they're going to have to have a, an airstrike come help him. Continues to make the call. Throughout the call, takes several more shots that kind of clip him and then he comes back into the cover and eventually dies from those wounds. And Marcus Luttrell, the rest of the story goes on. He escapes, he crawls through, and this kind village takes him in, and then he gets rescued. But Marcus Luttrell doesn't get rescued if Michael Murphy never makes that call. So Michael Murphy knows, I'm the leader. I'm the one on the hook for this. These are my men. This is my mission. I've got to be the one to step in to where the fight is the thickest. I have to be willing to do that. And he was. And we, we love that kind of heroic bravery as leaders. And then they've named a ship after him. They've named so many things after this guy. He received the Medal of Honor, obviously. And, and we love that stuff. And now while we may and probably will never be in that kind of situation where we're taking literal gunfire, the scriptures are, are, no, are not shy in telling us that we will take fire from the enemy. Now, when that happens, do we fold it up and try to do what we think might be best? Or do we do what we know is best? We persevere on and lead the people that we've been called to lead, whether that's your own children, whether that's your volunteering in the nursery, whether that's at work, whether that's at your bunco group or whatever it is. Are you going to step up when your number is called?
Are you going to step up? And that's why I love Nehemiah, because Nehemiah is all about that. There's a great quote from Calvin Coolidge. He says, nothing can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. And we look, as we look at this topic of perseverance and persistence as a leader of Nehemiah, we've got to look at how much text is given to this topic. A lot when we study the Bible, when however much is written about a topic, a person, an, an issue, a thing like that, it can denote a lot of importance to us. Not to say that other things aren't important because they don't have as much, but it should raise a flag for us to go, hmm, there's a lot written about this. So in the book of Nehemiah, his perseverance gets four whole chapters Four, five, six, and 13. And if I wish we could cover the whole thing, and I thought about trying to do it because there's no football, the Spurs lost, and nobody's going home to watch NHL playoffs. But <laughs> I figure if I catch you guys here to 330, nobody would be happy. But uh, so four chapters. We're just going to look at the first one. But the rest of his character qualities, which are great, his passion, two verses where he's just, his passion comes out. He's weeping for the, the city of, Israel, of Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that in a second. His prayer gets 11 verses. Now prayer... It doesn't have the volume, but it's repeated throughout in so many different places. But still, it gets 11. And then his, his planning gets five verses. So him having a great plan and executing it all the way out gets only five verses. But not to denote that, and we need to have a plan. All of those qualities are amazing, right? They're good. But this perseverance one is, should be a highlight to us. Like, hmm, like that's, that's something to note. So let's go ahead and dive in. Chapter 4, verse 1. Before we get in there, I, I don't want to jump in real quick. Let me explain to you where we are. Nehemiah is this guy who's a Jew who lives in Susa, the capital of Persia. Now, he's either been most of his adult life there or he's never even seen Jerusalem because he's in the period of the exile where everybody gets booted out of Jerusalem. They all get taken captive. And he's the cupbearer of the king, which is essentially head of the secret service because there's no long-range rifles back then. So if you want to kill the king, you poison his food. So he comes in there and he's, he's the guy. The king keeps him close. He's trusted. He's a, he's a hard worker. And his friends come back from the first wave of, of Israelites going back to Jerusalem. And he, they tell him, hey, man, it's terrible. It's messed up. It's burned to the ground. The city's in horrible ruins. We're a mockery. God's name is being mocked. He weeps and he prays in chapter 1. And then he's before the king in chapter two, and he has a plan. He's ready to go. He's ready to talk to this guy. He's like, how can I not be sad when the house of my, the city of my family is in ruins? So he's, he's uh, got to this point, and then he gets there. The king blesses him, gives him supplies, gives him a hall pass through all the hostile territories. He gets there, and he's got wood to build with. He's got military support. He's got all this stuff. He surveys the land. Chapter three, he puts people where they need to be. Chapter three is just so-and-so was next to so-and-so was next to so-and-so next to the, the sheep gate. And so-and-so was next to so-and-so next to so-and-so next to the tower of furnaces. So you can go and outline the perimeter of Jerusalem and where the people are. And he's making dignitaries work. He's making rich people work, making officials work. And he's putting them to work in front of their houses because he realizes you're going to make sure the wall is strong right outside your door. So he's got a plan. He's got all this stuff. And then now there's going to be some opposition because any true work of God draws opposition. And we're going to see what it looks like in verse, verse one, starting in verse one. Now it came about that when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. So Sambalat is this Persian official, and it's kind of like the Wild West back then. Sambalat, he just kind of, you can kind of post up in an area and say, this is mine, I'm the boss. And if nobody 
messes with you, then you're the boss. So he's kind of that in, in an area near Jerusalem, probably encompassing Jerusalem. So he's kind of posted up and claimed this, and he's not happy that people are there. And he's got two lackeys that we'll see later, and they kind of come up throughout the rest of the book, Tobiah and Geshem. Now, what it does for me to help me kind of understand these, these characters and make them bring them to life is I got to make them like almost cartoon characters. So Sambalat is kind of like the, the smart guy, the leader of the bad guy group. Tobiah is kind of the dumb jock meathead that you don't ever want to talk, but you're glad he's there. And then Geshem is kind of like, Geshem just sounds like a short squatty guy's name, right? So Geshem's like the toady yes man who's always like, yeah, boss. Like, that's kind of how I pictured these guys. So it helps me to visualize them. I could get to heaven and be totally wrong, but... Do, do what you will with those characters. Uh, so their initial plan, though, these three guys led by Sambalat is to mock them. And let's see how he mocks them in verse two. He spoke in the presence of his brothers because you never mock alone. You got you to gotta recruit some cronies. And the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? So he's going to mock their ability. Feeble Jews, you guys are weak, ineffectual. You can't do anything. He's going to mock their motives as ungodly, which is weird coming from a non-believer in God. He's going to say, are you they going to restore it for themselves? So like, are you just doing it for your own pride and for your own stuff? And then the third thing is, can they offer sacrifices? They're just throwing up a Hail Mary. This is just a wing and a prayer. Like they're, they're never going to get this done. And then he mocks their intelligence saying, can they finish in a day? Like they really think that they've thought this through and they're going to be able to build this wall. And then lastly, he says it's too tough for them. Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? This place is so burned down. It's so broken up. It's so terrible that they'll never be able to do it. And the reason the wall is such a big deal that we're even talking about it is because the wall is a signifier of the strength of your city. If your wall is weak and torn down, then you don't look good. You don't look well. And if your city is the city of God, then that speaks poorly of your God, that his, his town is just a dump heap. And so this is a big deal. And they're like saying, it's so burned. It's so terrible. They'll never be able to do it. Uh, and then we're going to see Tobiah chimes in. This is why I think he's the dumb meathead. We'll see his genius cut down. In verse three, he says, now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and, and he said, even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break down their stone wall. And you're like, okay, Tobiah, thanks for chiming that in. But if a fox jumps on it, it's going to fall down. I'm like, you got us, good one. <laughs> like, you can hear, hear Stamblot being like, shut up, man, you're making us look stupid. Like, you're here to be the muscle, not the brains. So, they get this mocking and they're just, they've gathered the surrounding people to make fun of them. And what does Nehemiah, how does he respond? We're going to see kind of how he takes and handles this criticism. And the first thing that I love about his response is that he doesn't. He doesn't respond. He's silent towards them. He doesn't respond back to them. Because if he does, if he's like, oh yeah, I bet if a fox jumped on you, you would fall down. Like, he would, it would look stupid, right? Like you're like, you're just down there in the muck with them. Or, and, and that's true across the board for leaders or people who, when you're mocked, you mock back. They just look so bad, right? Imagine, what if Jesus is mocking back on the cross? Like, that's just a gut-wrenching thing to try to imagine that, man, that Jesus would, oh gosh, it's just horrible to think about, right? Like, it would, it would like almost ruin everything else after that. So Nehemiah, he's, he just, he's not, he's above that. He's not going to mock back. What he is going to do is he's going to pray in verse four and five. Hear, O God, how we are despised. 
return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. So Nehemiah, you kind of sound like, oh, whoa, like, it's a little tough prayer. Like, hey, God, punish them. And you kind of think that that sounds worse than reviling back. But let's think about this. When we pray to God and we sing praises to God, we're just telling God things about his characteristics that he obviously already knows. And we don't have to tell God that you are holy when we sing songs in order for him to go, oh yeah, I am holy. I'll act holy. He's already doing that. And so what praise is, is we're just acknowledging who God is and what he does and his character and things like that. Now, is God just to punish sinners? Yes. Is God just to punish people and those who oppose his people and what he's doing? Yeah, God's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to make that happen. First Peter 5, 5 and 6 says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Nehemiah is essentially saying like, God, you are going to handle these guys. I'm not going to mess with them because I know this about you. You punish sin and you don't, you don't respond kindly to those who oppose you. So he's just confirming that with God. He's not like trying to strike down lightning on them. He's just saying, God, you're going to do what they're going to do with them. They're not my problem. So I'm not going to mess with them. He just gives it over to God. And then the third thing that Nehemiah is going to do in this response is, is he's, he's going to just blow them off. In verse, verse six, so we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work or a heart to work. These people have, they've gotten behind it. They've got the vision. Nobody's working faster than anybody else. They're all building at the same time. So the whole thing is halfway done. All the way around, it's halfway built. They're working hard. They're doing it. And they're just, Nehemiah is ignoring them and pushing on towards the goal to build this wall for God's honor. This is what he wants to do. And we're going to not be deterred. I'm going to persevere through this. And that shows us leadership, right? Like that is character to not revile back, but to do the work, to stay on point, to stay on mission. And he, he does that so well. And, you, and that's how you do it. You prove them wrong. Ultimately, that's how you prove them wrong is by your success and your hard work. And the greatest example of this, and, and I know he gets used to death all the time, but it's because it's true, is Tim Tebow. Regardless of whatever you think about him or whatever, have you ever heard an interview where he's like spitting back at people that are telling him he's terrible or that he's a virus or that he can't play, he can't throw? That's never happened. He, like he's won the Heisman, was up for another one, won two national championships, coming to NFL, and they say, you can't play. And most of the time when that happens, which rarely ever does, the guys are like, oh yeah, I can and I'll show you. I'm awesome. Here's a look at my website and follow me on Twitter. Like they, (laughs) but Tim Tebow just goes, no, sir, you tell me I can't play. Tell me what I need to do to get better. You say I can't, you say I throw weird. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to do what I can. They're like, you'll never win a game. He's going to, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to get in the gym. I'm going to lead my team. I'm going to build my teammates up and we're going to try to win games as much as we can. And then he does and he wins that playoff game, right? And then he gets benched forever for the whole year last year, right? And you're just like, oh, he's done. Like, and they, they can't even play in Canada. They're saying you can't play in Canada where they use meters instead of yards. And, and they, but he, like, that's the, the bottom of the barrel. But then he gets picked up by the New England Patriots, highest dollar market team in the nation with the biggest dynasty, the greatest quarterback of, of the era and the coach of the era. And they're like, we want to bring you in. Because why? The quotes are, he works hard. He's a great teammate. He makes everybody better. He keeps his head down and does the work and just lets the results speak for themselves and doesn't care about how their res- those results are interpreted. 
That's what Nehemiah does. I'm going to keep my head down and I'm going to do the work that God has given me to do. And so then verse seven, and I wish we could continue on with slides, but they're just remotes dead. So verse seven, he continues on uh, with what's going on. Now, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem are not cool with him going on and the people having a heart to work. That's no good. That's not going to fly for these guys. So verse seven, now it came about when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, it's continuing, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Now, let me give you just a little bit of geography. Jerusalem is literally surrounded by enemies. Like they are literally on every side covered by enemies. Let me, let me show you how. Sambalat is Persian, so he's got the area to the north of Jerusalem. Tobiah is an Ammonite, so he's got the land to the east. He's in control of that. And then Geshem is an Arab, so he's got the land to the south. And the Ashdodites, which are descended from Philistines, are the west on the coast side. So all 360 coverage, they're surrounded by enemies, enemies who hate them and who are no longer just mocking them and talking about foxes. They're going to say, we're going to come fight you. We're going to come physically attack you. So now the game has changed. Now, if you're a Jew who's come back to Jerusalem with Nehemiah from Persia and to rebuild the wall, now it's no longer, I'm going to go to work and get made fun of. I'm going to go to work and I might get murdered. I'm going to go to work and I may not come home. It's gone from verbal to physical threats. So now it's different. Now everything is, is, is a, a lot higher stakes. And so what does Nehemiah do? He prays. Verse nine, but we prayed to our God because of them. We set up a guard against them day and night. We pray. Nehemiah just prays nonstop. You read the book of Nehemiah and it's like something happened and then I prayed. Something happened and then I prayed. He just prays and he prays and he prays all the time. He's always coming back to God. And as Christian leaders, our source is God, not us. So he's not like, people are freaking out. So I drew up a seven point plan to encourage them. He's, I prayed. He prays to God, but the people, the people are weak. We learn that throughout all of history. The masses are weak. In verse 10, thus in Judah, it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. We ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. So they, they're starting to punt. Like they're, they're like, we can't do it. And like, you've already built it halfway up and now you're deciding, ah, oh, we can't do it. We were unable to do it. They're, kind of, they're, they're quitting. The negative talk is spiraling. In verse 12, or verse 11, the enemies start spreading rumors. And our enemy said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. So they're just sending out these, these threats of death, not just, ah, you can't do it, but we're going to come kill you. So they're spreading rumors and circulating these things. And so now Nehemiah has a different thing to deal with. And we as leaders always deal with the outside enemy, but also the rebellion of the people. What are the people going to do? They're going to start believing it. They're going to become critics who are unwilling to help. Verse 12, and it came about when the Jews who lived near them, near the enemies, came and told us 10 times they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. So if you're continually coming to Nehemiah and telling him, hey, they're going to come get us. Hey, we're not ready. Hey, this is this. Are you working? No. They're not working. They've quit doing the work and now they're just criticizing the leader. 
hey, fix this, hey, fix that. Hey, they're going to come from over here. They might come from over there. And they're not doing the work. They're, they're armchair quarterbacks. We, we can't stand that people that are like that, that you're trying to accomplish something, you're in the thick of it, and people want to complain. They want to tell you what you're doing wrong, but they don't want to help. They don't want to roll their sleeves up and get in it with you. That's so frustrating, right? The, the, the highlight experience of that in my brain is in high school, I played football and I played quarterback and everybody on the field feels like they have the place to correct the quarterback. Just like every single one of you feel like you know more football than Coach Sumlin because you're at home being like, oh, I should have ran this play, I should have ran that play. And we're all geniuses. We're smarter than Slocum. We're smarter than Franchoni and we're smarter than Sherman. And as soon as someone loses the game, we'll be smarter than him. But everybody... Everybody on the field would just would always be like, do that better, do this. And so I'm, I would roll out to the right, throw it into the dirt. It would skip to the receiver. And the coach would be like, hey, Sanders, from way over the field. You need to throw that one a little higher. I'm like, great, coach. <laughs> I, I realize that, but I keep doing it. I'm throwing it in the dirt like, hey, come on, get it up in the air. I'm like, how? Like, I, I want to do this, but I don't know how. So finally, coach said, hey, you need to bubble deeper. When you roll to the right, you're left-handed. So you come square to the line. I'm like, oh, useful information. Thank you for not just telling me, hey, do better, and, and showing me how. And we have this problem in the church at large. We see people doing ministry and doing work, and we're like, hey, that's not good, but I'm going to go home and watch football. Or, hey, that's, you should do that differently, but don't ask me to help. Like we do that all the time and, and that's frustrating to leadership, but a good leader blows it off. We're going to see what Nehemiah does in verse 13. When the people are wavering, he takes a decisive battle action. Verse 13, then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space between the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. So he's like, all right, they're going to come and attack. Well, you're going to be in the hole in the wall where they're going to come through, and you're going to have a sword, a spear, and a bow, and I'm going to put you and your brothers with you. That's what we're going to do. He takes decisive action. He doesn't go, oh, we're doing it wrong. Let's just quit. Or, oh, let's try this program instead of that program because you guys don't like that one. He says, no, you go do it. You're going to get into this game. I'm going to step in and motivate you and bring you to this table. You're going to come to this fight. He doesn't cower when he's under trial. He steps in and he does it. And he, he takes this decisive action. He's not just leaning on a shovel, praying for God to fix everything. He's doing something. He ignores these armchair quarterbacks and he has courage when it counts. Because at that point, it sounds pretty bad and he could have folded it up and been like, ah, we tried the best. I'm gonna go back to my sweet job in this pagan capital and see you later. But he stays, he has courage when it counts. In the day of trouble, he is not slack. So all that prep, all that prayer, all that stuff that he's done would have been worthless if at this point he folds up, but he doesn't. And that happens all the time, right? We see all these people with great talent, great ambition, great goals. Something happens and they're like, oh, God doesn't want it to happen because it's hard. And they quit. I had this, the, the greatest moment in my mind of this ever happening to me is I was, when I was on Navigator staff at Texas A&M, I was taking this guy out to share the gospel. His name was Ibukun Oni. He's not from Texas. Uh, 
He's from, his parents are from Nigeria. And he, I mean, he wanted to come and he wanted to learn how to share the gospel. And so I'm like, great, Ibukun. And he's sharing it with me. And I'm getting practice with me. And then, all right, hey, come with me and I'll show you how to do it. And you can kind of watch what it's like when we just cold turkey go up to somebody. And so it comes his day where I'm like, all right, Ibukun, you're going. You pick a guy. You walk around and the key things to pick, somebody not on their phone, somebody not with headphones in, and not somebody with giant sunglasses because they can pretend they didn't see you. So... He goes and he finds a guy and he picks this guy and it's like, oh, great. A guy with a ponytail, they're always nice. So he picks this guy and he's talking to him and Ibukun's kind of going through his prep stuff like, hey, how's it going? My name's Ibukun. And they're like, what? Ibukun, it's a weird name. And he has to explain that. And uh, so we start talking to this guy and it comes down to Ibukun's got to say it. Hey, I got an illustration that can explain the gospel. And so the guy's like, oh, that'd be a waste of time on me. And Ibukun kind of freezes up because... We didn't practice that. He's like, uh, uh. And so I kind of like, all right, time to step in here and help Ibukun out. And I'm like, well, why would that be a waste of time? And come to find out he's a biology grad student working on his PhD, scientist, love, you know, evolution, atheist, all the stuff. And he's like, that'd be a waste of time. I don't believe any of that. I only believe in stuff that I can see and measure and feel and, and calculate and all that. And I'm like, oh, okay, great. And so I'm realizing we're not going to get a long way with this guy. Like this takes a relationship with this kind of guy, but I want Ibukun to see the inconsistencies. So I bring up stuff about mutations and like, how can we never seen a positive one? It always kills the animal, but yet you, all of evolution stands on that fact. And he goes, well, that's that faith you were talking about earlier. And I was like, oh, Bingo. There's our contradiction. I wanted Ibukun to see that. So now we're like, all right, great. Have a great day. We'll, we'll see you later. But before I can even get to that, he says, all right, I got to go. But uh, if I don't believe any of this, am I going to go to hell? And I was like, well, you know, me being, let's not be confrontational and be a jerk. I'm like, well, all of us are destined for hell, but Jesus stepped in and paid that price. He paid a price that we couldn't pay. So we have a credit out there that we can charge to our account. And then therefore we are squared up with God. We are just with God. He declares us righteous, even though we can't earn it. And he goes, yeah, 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 whatever, I don't, I don't, whatever, all that stuff. If I get in my car, I drive home and I die, according to you, am I going to hell? And that was a point where you're like, oh, he's totally backed me into a corner here. And so I got a choice now. Like, do I, do I soft pedal the gospel and then explain to Ibukun somehow that that was the right thing to do and that I wasn't lying and that that wasn't me being a coward? Or do I just got to tell him straight up? And I was like, yeah, man, that's, that's what the Bible says. That's going to happen to you. And he goes, all right, see you later. And he kind of storms off and he got to go home and be mad about another Christian making him mad and he can put it in the category of stuff that makes him mad. And so he, he left in doing that. But that was the point where it's like, if I, I've done all this practice, I've done all this training, I'm training another guy. And when the rubber meets the road, the most uncomfortable thing that could possibly happen happens. If I don't follow through, then I, I might as well have not memorized those verses. I might as well have not practiced on somebody who was already a Christian. And this is all worthless. And so Nehemiah is in the same spot. If I don't do this, if I don't persevere through this, then all of it was a waste. All of it was a waste. And we as leaders, we're called to persevere and push through this. And he does. The people are faltering. And verse 14, this is, this is the great moment. This is the rip your shirt off and paint your face blue moment where he says... In verse 14, when I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. 
Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. This is the moment in every movie that we always love when you start either crying or just jump up and scream because he's riding up and down on a horse in front of the men and encouraging them or he's telling them to circle up and make your shells, your seals like a turtle shell so we can survive this thing. And, and that's the moment we all live for. And he had already done one of these and he's doing another one. He stands up and addresses the people and he turns them to who? To God. He says, don't fear them and remember God who is great and awesome. Because as leaders, it's not on us. My plan, remember my plan. Remember how I schmoozed the king and he gave us all that stuff. Remember how we have a little bit of the Persian army here with us. He doesn't say any of that. He says, remember God. Remember God. He drives the people to God. And then what does he say? And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. He's thinking others. So the leader drives people to God and to others. He doesn't say, hey, fight for God because you're individually and uniquely talented and God loves every single one of you. He's like, no, you fight for God because of who he is and because of the people around you. That's why we do this. That's why. So they can continue on. That's why Lieutenant Michael Murphy jumped out in the fray because the importance is freedom continuing on. And if I don't do this, then that could stop freedom continuing on for everybody else in America, generation after generation. And Nehemiah says the same thing. And we think spiritually generation. If I don't do this, if I don't step into the fray right now, what spiritual generations are coming after me? Is it, is it going to die with me or am I living for something bigger than myself? The people that come after me because God's name has got to be heralded when I'm gone, not just while I'm around. And that's Nehemiah's motivation for these people. What is your life even worth if everything you've done dies with you? So then he steps in and he does take, he does take a battle plan. It's game time. He's got to do something. And so he's not just praying, hey, God, fix everything. But hey, I, I trust you, but I know I have a role to do also. So in verse 15, it says, And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. So God steps in and he blesses Nehemiah's perseverance. He frustrates their plans. So for that time, they're not coming. God stepped in and made it happen. And we serve a supernatural God who can do that kind of stuff. So he steps in and God blesses it. But Nehemiah, he's still an active leader and he's going to step in and do things. Verse 16, and it came about from that day on that half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. So he's got guys dedicated just to service, just to to security. And then continuing on, verse 17, those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. He's got guys on the wall like, hey, you're spreading mortar. You got your trowel that holds the the concrete paste and you're spreading that, but you also got a sword. You're in the fight. You're building what God wants to be built up and you're fighting off what God, what those who are opposing what God is doing. So he enlists these men, these families, and he gets them going. And he continues on and he has a a rally call. When you hear the trumpet, you come to me and we'll fight. Not because we're awesome, but verse 20, at whatever place you hear the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So your backyard Bible club, you got it at your house. Hey, you rally to our house and God is going to bring people there. And God is going to bring servants there to help. 
That's what he's going to do. Not us and our games and our squirt guns, but God. And then the last thing that I love that he does is he's serious about this. He is dedicated, and he's making other people be dedicated too. Verse 23, so neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon even to the water. Water is Bible code for bathroom. So he's, even when you're in the bathroom, you're sitting there with your sword, just waiting for somebody to come in that door. So he's, he's saying, no matter what, we are committed to God's work. Even if it makes our life a little bit inconvenient for now, we're going to do this because our God will fight for us. And he's got these people motivated, listened up, and they're ready to do it. So the men who are going to help with communion, you guys can, can go on back. And we're going to move into our application time because what good is learning from Scripture if we don't change our lives from it? And the first application is how are you going to persevere? We don't often think about that. We hear these great stories. Nehemiah has this great moment, but the book continues on. He comes back in chapter 13 and everybody has punted on all of the new things they've started. So he's yanking people's beards out and saying, shape up. He finishes all the way to the end. And that's why we love him. He's a finisher. So it's the goal of our life to have one great moment where we do something awesome for God, or are we trying to live a whole time, live the whole life? Or are we just trying to pitch one really good inning, but Nehemiah is throwing a complete game. So how are you going to persevere? I would say there's three ways to make sure we're persevering. How's your own walk with Christ? Because if we're not meeting with Christ every day, then what are we doing? We have unlimited free access whenever we want to the creator of the universe, and he wants us to. And if we're not meeting with him, then what are we doing? So that's the first one. And the second one is, do you have somebody older or wiser than you that's pouring into you? Because we don't know everything. So get somebody who can see the holes in your life and say, hey, fix that. That's not good. Hey, and you can just ask, hey, how do I do this? How do I navigate this? Every time I go somewhere new or I'm in a new spot, I look for an older guy. Like, you're smarter than me and you're a better dad and a better husband than me. Teach me how to do that. So find somebody like that. And the third thing is, is brothers and sisters of like-minded in a community so that you're around people who are building you up so that you can therefore go out and do something and who are going to set a good example for you and for your kids and, and be there and, and build each other up because the group needed to be builded up, but they also needed to go out and do something. The second thing is, is are you living for something bigger than yourself or are you just doing you? Christians, we should be looking down the road, not just, okay, my life is good. I have good quiet times. I know a lot of verses, but does somebody else know that? Is somebody else being impacted by your life? Because if not, it dies with you. And then therefore, at your funeral, everybody says, wow, they accomplished all these things. They got all these awards. And then that's it. But if people aren't standing up at your funeral saying, that person invested in me and I am different now because of them for the ultimate purpose of glorifying Christ, that's what we need to be doing. Second Timothy 2, 2, the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul's looking three generations ahead of where he is. And that's what we need to be doing. That's what Nehemiah is saying to do. And it's with your own kids, with your own neighbors, everything. And the last thing is, is as Christian leaders, we should be living with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other hand. We need to be building and investing in what God is doing, which is people. And we need to be fending off the evil that is corrupting this work. And that comes in many sources, through Facebook, through the internet, through TV, through friends, through work, through all that stuff, through your own flesh, through your own sin. Are you fighting that off and building? Or are you only volunteering a bunch and not worrying about the evil infiltrating? Or all you do is fight and you don't ever build anything? Christian leaders, we got to be doing both. 
We've got to be doing both. So as we, as we wrap up now and move into a time of, of communion as the, as the men pass out the elements, I want us to think about Nehemiah and everything that he did was because of what God was going to do that he knew he couldn't do. And as we participate in communion and we look into Christ, we're essentially looking at what he did that we could never do. We're looking at what he did for us on our behalf that we could never accomplish, no matter how motivated or psyched up we were. So think about that as we, as we pray and move into this time of communion as the men continue with the elements. recounts the the story of Jesus in the Last Supper. In verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, and that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread, and and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Verse 25 goes on to say, In the same way he took the cup also, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. Verse 26, he wraps it up. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what we're doing. We're proclaiming Jesus boldly in a world that doesn't believe. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to get to hear from your word and that you give us your word in innumerable translations and we can read it whenever we want, as often as we want, and we can hear exactly what you want us to hear. What a privilege it is to come before you, God, and we know that we have no access to you but through Jesus. So we are grateful that the body that the bread of his body was broken for us and that his blood of the covenant was spilled for us. And we are so grateful that, that you saw fit to do that when we did not deserve it, when we were godless, we were sinners, we were, we were weak and we were your enemies. So thank you, Lord. I pray that as we go out, uh, living our lives, doing our normal things, that we would live intentionally as leaders and we would look to persevere, not just peak emotionally, that we would live a, a life of consistency and persevering, not start well and fizzle or lead a life that's worthless and, and realize that only at the end. So Lord, we thank you again for your word. Let us be changed by it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.